Acts 7, 54 through 60. Please read along with me. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. Let's pray for the sermon today. Almighty Lord, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit to give us words we need to hear. And we ask that you would fill us with your spirit so we could hear and receive them and live them. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So the passage I read you is at the end of this long section in Acts about Stephen. It starts in chapter 6, goes through chapter 7. Stephen gives the longest speech in the book. Stephen is seized and is sort of kind of put on trial. I say sort of kind of, it, use the word witnesses. But, you know, people have rightly noted, if you remember, with Pontius Pilate and the way that Jesus's actual trial played out, the Jewish authorities had to bring him before the Romans because the Jewish people weren't allowed to do capital punishment. And yet here with Stephen, the Jewish authorities kill him. They stone him. So people have rightly said this is a kind of trial, but really more of a mob justice lynching sort of a situation. So Stephen pours out his heart. He goes back through the history of scripture. He retells the story of God's work with his people. He ends by bringing it up to the story of the one whom God sent and whom he says the people murdered. And then he is killed for that. He becomes the first martyr of the church. Well, the first martyr after Jesus. What we're looking at is the passage that describes that martyrdom. And I have to confess to you, I don't really feel capable of preaching about this. And that is for several reasons. The first is, I worry, worry deeply about preaching about persecution in our climate, in our culture. I've said this before. What I've seen so often continue to see that deeply unsettles me and worries me as Christians in our context, claiming that they are being persecuted for their faith when in fact they are being persecuted for being jerks. So I, I don't want to fuel unhealthy persecution complexes. That makes this hard to preach about. This is persecution. 
There's another reason this is really, really hard for me. And that is, I don't really know how to speak to this, if I'm honest with you. I mean, this is someone that is so bold and faithful and full of the Spirit that he stands up, probably knowing the outcome. He speaks the truth of God, and then he is brutally killed. For me to try to elaborate and explain that and talk about the significance of that and how that worked is kind of like me trying to do that for being pregnant. I don't have the credibility to do that. There's another reason I find this really, really hard to preach about. And that is this. I've shared with some of you, I, I heard a sermon not too long ago. We went to a church and the pastor preached on Jesus healing a leper in John 5. And in that sermon, the pastor quickly said something like, we are all lepers. We are spiritual lepers and our spiritual leprosy is our pride. And he started to talk about that and he gave a sermon on that. Oh, and I was so troubled. And I was troubled because of this. I just kept thinking, okay, there, there, there might be a lot of truth to what you're saying and I may need to hear it at some point, but I was just, I was disturbed that he quickly moved past the actual leper. There was a real leper and Jesus really healed him. And I don't want to ever preach in such a way that we just move past that reality. Stephen is a, um, let me put it this way as I was struggling with this. Stephen is our actual real Christian brother, as much as any of the people we see here. And um, when I read this and I think about what really happened to him, I, I long for the day, the new heavens and new earth, when I will get to see him and I will get to see his scars. And yes, I think he'll still have his scars. Jesus had his scars after he was resurrected. David, and I talked about this when he was in the hospital dying about whether we would still have scars. I said, I think we will, because if they are to God's glory, if they are part of God's beauty, if they are part of God's working, I don't see why we wouldn't like Jesus didn't. And I thought of it this way, Jesus is more beautiful with his scars than without his scars. I was thinking about Stephen this week and seeing Stephen and meeting Stephen and seeing his scars. And then I thought, gosh, that'll be awkward for Paul. <laughs> and I thought more about it. I wrestled with that. You know, I don't think it will be awkward for Paul. I think Paul will see that and Paul will praise God more than anyone as the one who helped be a part of inflicting scars like that, when he sees what God did with those scars and did in him, where God brought him from to who God made him to, I think Paul will rejoice at Stephen's scars more than anyone. Anyway, as I was struggling with all this, I say this for a reason. I kind of started to appreciate the medieval fourfold sense of scripture. You ever heard of that? It's the way people used to read the Bible and they would, they would talk about level one, the literal. Level two is the typological or allegorical. Level three is the moral. Level four is the anagogical. I don't have to go into all this, but I'm just saying, I think there is a deep impulse not to too quickly 
move past the literal, and that is good and right. And that's what I was wrestling with. I was thinking about what actually happened to Stephen. So I want to start with this. In the vein of the literal, because I feel compelled to do this before I, I move on to another level or another type of meaning for us. Um, let's pray together for thanking God for Stephen and also praying for those people who are suffering literally what Stephen did. I want to start with that. <sighs> Almighty Lord, praise your name, hallelujah, for the work you did in Stephen's life that enabled him to be so bold so full of your spirit, as Luke tells us, that he could give us this example of your working in the human person. Praise you for that. And Almighty Lord, we pray together for those who are suffering in ways we cannot really imagine if we are honest those in the world today that are actually thrown in jail, that are tortured, that are killed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Hear our prayer for them. In Jesus' name, amen. I do think that there are things we can go on to say and should go on to say about this story for us who aren't being killed. I'm gonna put four verses on the screen and I wanna ask you one simple question. What do you notice? Here's the first verse. It's from our story today. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Second verse. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. First was Stephen, second was Jesus. Next verse. This is then he, Stephen. This is from our story today. Then Stephen knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Last verse. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. What do you notice from those four verses about Stephen? He's Christ-like. The way he lived this out as the first martyr really reminds us of exactly how Jesus himself went to his death. Commends his spirit to the Lord, just like Jesus did. He prays for those who are killing him, just like Jesus did. The way that martyrs themselves, I read a lot of martyr stories this week. 
I don't know that I would recommend that exercise. That's tough. That's tough. It's kind of like when I was growing up, I saw that movie Schindler's List. It was amazing. I don't want to see it again. Martyr stories are tough. But you know, one thing that comes up again and again and again with these folks that have done these sorts of things, the way they talk, they talk about imitating their Lord, just like Stephen. They want to imitate Jesus in their suffering. It's the way these martyrs talk. That's the way theologians talk after them, imitating Jesus. I'm going to read you one quotation. Ignatius of Antioch, second century Christian, really famous, one of the early most important Christians, left a bunch of letters that people read. He was martyred. This is what he said in one of those letters. When there is no trace of, and this is as he's looking forward to going to Rome where he's probably going to be eaten by animals or burned alive. When there's no trace of my body left for the world to see, then I shall be truly Jesus Christ's disciple. Leave me to imitate the passion of my God. We often think about imitating Jesus. There was that bracelet years back. What would Jesus do, right? Imitate Jesus. Imitate his kindness and imitate his forgiveness and his prayerfulness. And we could go on and on, right? But should we imitate his suffering? It's actually a hard question, right? I mean, think about it. There are ways that Jesus did things that we shouldn't imitate, shouldn't follow, because he was the son of God. Jesus died for the sins of the world on the cross. I shouldn't imitate that, right? Well, let's look at some verses from the Bible. Luke 9, 23. Then Jesus said to them all, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. We abstract that, we generalize that, we water that down, but there's a cross in there. John 15, 18, this is Jesus talking to his followers again. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. And lastly, 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you should follow in his steps. I could have put a lot more verses down. We'll move on for the sake of time. But these early martyrs, these early Christians, they absolutely believed that suffering, not for the sins of the world, but suffering for 
following Jesus, following God, being true to him, not denying him, proclaiming his worship. Remember, martyr means witness. Witnessing to the truth of who he is. That following Jesus in that was absolutely part of imitating Jesus. Why do we imitate Jesus? Why do we imitate Jesus in anything? But, but in his suffering, why do we imitate Jesus? A friend of mine years ago recommended this book to me. It says his favorite Christian book outside the Bible. Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ. You know that one? It's like 1441, I think. I don't know what to do with this. I'm kind of weird like this. I mentioned the Desert Fathers last week. First two or three times I read the Desert Fathers, I just really didn't like it. I didn't engage it. I couldn't get anything out of it. And then I picked it up recently, and now I kind of love the Desert Fathers. Same thing true with this book, Imitation of Christ. I started reading it, and I put it down. I was like, yeah. And I picked it up again this week, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I don't know what that says about me. Here's Thomas Akempis. Anyone who wishes to understand Christ's words and to savor them fully should strive to become like him in every way. If you want to understand Jesus, what he was talking about, you got to try to do what he did if you really want to get it. What is grace? You could read books and books, shelves of books about grace. But it's a whole different way to understand it if you've experienced grace. What does it mean to live in Boston? You never set foot in Boston, you just read about it. I would say you don't know that nearly as well as people that have lived in the place their whole lives. Here's one that hits close to home for me, applying it to what Thomas Akempis said. I thought I understood and appreciated what Jesus did with the garrison demoniac. Remember, and he goes and the man's in chains, legions of demons inside him. Jesus calls them out. I read that story a lot. Thought I understood it. I read it differently now. After having spent some time engaging a homeless woman who called me Satan and threatened to kill me. Walk a mile in someone's shoes if you want to understand them. It's the old idiom, right? Try to walk like Jesus lives. Try to walk like Jesus walked. Wow. All of a sudden, you're going to love him and appreciate him a lot more than you do just reading about it. That's one reason we imitate Jesus. There's another reason we imitate Jesus. It, it draws us closer to him. I've shared this before. I'll share it again. Powerful experience I had this summer was praying to God to fill me with the words I needed to speak to David Devanna as he lay dying. And I didn't know if I could be honest with him about what the doctors had told me and what this actually meant and was going to mean. 
but I know I needed to. So I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God allowed me to be more honest than I thought I ever could. And he allowed David to receive it in a way that I never thought possible. And we were both just struck by the Holy Spirit in that room. But here's what I said to David. I said, David, God wants you to learn one more thing in this life. And that is to suffer for him. And I said, I don't know a lot about this personally. I know a tiny bit, but not much, not really. But I do know from reading, talking to people, trying to get into this, that people have experienced the suffering of Jesus in this way. And it talks about this in the book of Hebrews a bit. Suffering can draw you closer to Jesus unlike almost anything else. If you experience it through the Spirit, by, with God there. And here's why. Here's one of the reasons why. I said, look, when you start to experience the pain that you're going to experience, direct your thoughts to Jesus's own pain for you. And when you experience pain, think of the pain that Jesus experienced greater than any you could ever experience and how that was for you and every person. And let that draw you into his heart that he did that for you. And David experienced suffering like that. We imitate Jesus in his suffering for different reasons. And one of it is to draw us into him. But there's something more I have to say today about this story of Stephen. We have to talk about more than imitation. I'm going to pull back the curtain a bit. I don't understand how pastors prepare several sermons in advance. I mean, both because I don't know how that is possible time-wise. I haven't figured it out. But there's another reason is because part of my process, at least that I cherish, is just sitting with that text the whole week, kind of using it as my lens and looking around. God, what do you want to say to me, to us through this story? And that happened this week. That happened this week for me in a profound way. And that's where we're going to end the story of Stephen. And that was this. I preached last Sunday about anxiety and about seeking to turn your actual mind, heart, attention, eyes, imagination to Jesus as being there, actually there with you every second, as much as you can and getting better at that. And then we got to prayer on Wednesday night. And our Stephen, spelled with a V, not a PH, started to pray, been thinking about what I preached, and he started to pray with us. All these prepositions, God being with us, God being for us, being above us, behind us, before us, in us, just kept going. And I told Stephen afterwards, I said, I think that, 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 that's something God is saying to us and doing for us and doing in us is, is I was thinking in the days after my sermon leading up to tonight, I want to I look up that prayer, you know, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in my right hand, Christ in my left hand. I said, I've been thinking the same way about all those prepositions. And 
What I realized as I read this story, this Stephen, P.H., Stephen in the Bible, oh, he's a man of prepositions. He exemplifies what Stephen was praying about this week. Let me explain. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus taught his disciples how to read Scripture anew. He taught him how to read Scripture, that it all pointed to him and that he was there on every page. They couldn't see it before, but they could now. Eileen mentioned the children's Bible. You know what one of my favorite Bibles is? The Jesus Storybook Bible for kids. Because it gets this. It finds Jesus in every story in the Bible. That's how Jesus taught them to read it in the road to Emmaus. And what do we see in the longest speech in Acts from Stephen the martyr? We see Stephen who has deeply internalized scripture. I mean, he knows scripture and he knows it as a Christian man. The way he talks about Joseph, the way he talks about Moses and the prophets who predicted Jesus, he models them all and tells them all as precursors to Jesus himself. True men of God were always persecuted, were always killed and opposed by their people. And that is what happens recently. Christ is behind Stephen. He's behind him for years. We saw Stephen earlier waiting tables. The way that Stephen lived his life up to this point meant that Christ has been behind him up to this moment. Christ is in front of him too. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, at Stephen. This is before he starts his speech. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Does that remind you of anything in the Bible, that, that little phrase, the face of an angel? Who else had a face kind of like that? Moses. Moses. Describes it a little differently. A shining, glowing, bright face. So you got to put a veil on it. Why did Moses have that? Because he sat face to face with God. You get a face like that if Christ is right in front of your eyes. Christ was behind Stephen for years. Christ was in front of his face. Christ was above him. Look, he said, Stephen said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they all covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Christ is above him. Christ is sovereign, ruling, in control, 
above everything that's happening on this earth for Stephen. They can't see that, but he can. There's probably more prepositions we could talk about with Stephen. But the last one I want to talk about is Christ being in him. Jesus had said this. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That's Christ in us. That's how Stephen speaks the way he does. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. One of the martyr stories I read was of a pregnant servant woman named Felicitas. When she was in prison, a guard was taunting her, and she said this, What I suffer now, I suffer by myself. Meaning when she's in prison. But then, looking forward to when she would be killed in the arena, then... Another will be inside me who will suffer for me because I shall be suffering for him. So we come back to Stephen. And this is the key to the whole story. And I'm convinced because of the way I've been hearing this word from God over and over this week, this is the word for us. This is the most important word for us. But filled with the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen could only do any of it because what he sought, what he yearned for, what he was about, what defined him, what made him able to do what he did was being in Christ and Christ in him. And I have to confess to you, when I was in seminary 
And I graduated a few years later and I looked back, how did I change? How did I develop? What did God do in me during those years, reading all that stuff, learning all from all those teachers? There are different ways to answer that, but I think the number one one was this. The power, the centrality, the importance of the Holy Spirit in our Christian lives. There's a lot of ways we try to reconcile things intellectually and create systems and answer questions and come to satisfactory conclusions about all our worries. And ultimately, you can't always do that. What you have to come back to is the Spirit leading you in discernment of what to say in this moment. That was me in seminary. After three and a half years of being pastor, if you asked me the same question, what is it that you've changed in? How have you developed? What have you learned? What has being a pastor done in your life and relationship with our Lord? I'd answer that in different ways. So I was preparing this sermon. I was really digging in on this. I was thinking about Stephen and how beautiful his witness is. Honestly, I realized, I think probably my number one answer to that question would be the centrality, the importance, the end-all be-all of seeking Christ in us and us in Christ. I don't, I don't know that there's anything more important Martyrs like Stephen remind us that that is possible in such a way that you can do the bravest, most beautiful things. Amen.